Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by the Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Today on Tapping Into the Human, we have Garth Mullins, who is an activist, writer, and broadcaster. Garth is the host of Crackdown, which is a monthly podcast on drugs, drug policy, and the drug war led by drug user activists. So Garth, really appreciate your time and thank you for being here. Hey, thank you. And um, I, I know I'm here because the mom of your friend uh, reached out and I am, I'm yeah. sorry for your loss and her loss. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. No, that, that, that means a ton. I mean, I think the cool thing about um, the Albertus Project, which is the nonprofit that I founded in this podcast, is it's really catered to people who are like me, who, I mean, six months ago, I knew nothing about addiction. Um, and really trying to educate people like me who are sort of sitting on the sidelines to new terms, even like harm reduction. I'm learning what that is. Um, and I and I know you're very passionate about that. So I uh, appreciate you being on here and hopefully we'll be able to educate. I'm going to learn from you and then everyone else who's listening will be also able to learn too. So that's awesome. Sounds good. Congratulations yeah. on the uh, the nonprofit and the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I think it's really great to take um, the grief from a loss like that and turn it into action. And Thank that's you. Uh, the only way that we sort of keep going around here, actually. Uh, no, I, I 100% agree. And, and that's sort of what I was. See, this is your, you're such a good podcast podcast. <laughs> I was like asking me questions. But no, that that's exactly sort of what happened was um, fortunately for me, Reed was the first person very close to me who I ever lost and I was 24 thank god I have you know all my grandparents and all that sort of thing so it was very difficult to a lose one of your best friends and lose one of your best friends to something you had no clue about and it wasn't until her funeral where there were so many people basically saying like sending their condolences to me and um saying like you know I am recovery the reason why I'm here is because of Reed and and really learning about that that I realized like I got to do something more than mourn and I got to make something and keep her legacy alive and really help people like me who are just trying to understand and haven't been uh, a partner or an ally. So no, I appreciate that a ton. Yeah, for sure. So I was going to say, can you start off um, by giving us a little bit of a deeper dive into you, who you are and why you're so passionate about harm reduction? Uh, I'm, um, I'm just an old school dope fiend from back in the day. I mean, that's who I am. I've been on <clears throat> heroin and opioids and now methadone for my whole adult life. I actually don't know how people manage to go through the world with no substances at all. So congratulations if there's anybody <laughs> like that listening. <laughs> it's kind of a superhuman power. And um, because the the substances I've been wired to have been illegal my whole life, the the strength of them has been very unknown and that has led in in vancouver and british columbia to two publicly declared overdose crises in the 90s and then now and uh so far i've survived them both but um not so many people of my vintage have uh i've lost probably half the people that i've come up with uh to to overdose or to drug war related deaths right and so i'm 
I guess I'm passionate about it because, well, number one, I want to live. Fucking A, I want to live. But I also want the people who I love to stay alive too. And I want to take this weapon out of the hands of government and police, this drug war that they use to roll like a military force into you know, black neighborhoods and indigenous communities and round people up and exclude them from society. I want to see that all end. So it's uh, it's an interest in survival, but it's also my interest in social justice, which I've had my whole life. No, that's amazing. I think that that's super important um, because I, as I said, I, I'm learning a ton and obviously didn't even necessarily realize that the drug war um, is rooted in a lot of systematic racism. And really, I mean, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but do you think, you know, the police brutality and, and the government not understanding is just a lack of education? Or do you think they understand and they just really don't give a shit? What, what do you think it is? Well, I mean, the, the drug war was founded in Canada here 113 years ago, you know, in, um, in 1908, like about a kilometer from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, there was a big movement here to close the doors and end Chinese and Japanese immigration forever to exclude those people. And so a lot of politicians were really like making their mark in the world, including uh, Canada's who would become Canada's longest serving prime minister, um, Mackenzie King. Mm. At the time, he was sort of like a senior bureaucrat, and he did a little investigation into a riot that happened here. A bunch of white people got very mad. They were part of the Asiatic Exclusion League. They smashed up Chinese and Japanese businesses and beat people up. And so there was a little inquiry to see, do does, does the government have to pay for some shop windows and stuff? Yes, they right. did pay a little bit. But out of that came, um, oh, well, we want to ban opium. Opium is this terrible way that... Uh, uh, the, the young white women and girls are being uh, negatively influenced by these uh, these foreign people. You know, this was the report of uh, Mackenzie King back to Ottawa, and within months, um, there was a law uh, outlawing um, opium, like the beginning of prohibition of drugs. And um, that was not a public health concern. This was basically an attack on a, a visible minority. Right. You know, this was like a white supremacy in Canada finding a weapon that looked a little like something else and this this often happens you know like um maybe maybe uh, residential schools will have some pretext about education that is the nice wrapping that's around the more crass white supremacy so the fact that governments and police are still aggressively uh arresting and harassing and marginalizing people who use drugs is no accident. It's not because they don't understand. They understand so well. There's been so much research. Uh, the coroner's reports come out every month here in British Columbia. Thousands and thousands of people have died. There's no confusing the issue. It's because they have put their lot in with white supremacy and the drug war. And every single individual and official and politician may not consciously think that, but that is the effect of where they're planting their ass. And so for sure... I think that most people are supporting the drug war with open eyes. Interesting. You know, and it, it's so it's so heartbreaking to me, obviously, for so many reasons. And a lot of our listeners are Americans, and I've been learning a lot about, obviously, addiction all over the world, specifically in Canada. And one of my best friends lives in Vancouver, and she's part of um, an organization called Adam's Apples Organization, which helps... Um, deliver mental health and addiction literacy to younger kids 
Um, and obviously what's going on in Vancouver is really bad right now. The uh, opioid addiction, uh, ep- I say it's like the epidemic within the pandemic. Can you explain to a lot of our listeners who might not be tracking what's going on in Vancouver, what's actually happening on the ground? Yeah, I mean, Vancouver is where, like I said, where the drug war started. So lots of trends that happen in the rest of Canada start here first. So um, after opium was made illegal, people had to have a smaller amount, a smaller quantity to smuggle more easily. You know, this happened in alcohol prohibition too. People drank beer and then it was moonshine. So they needed something bigger bang for the buck. And so we very quickly got to heroin here and then drug users needed a bigger bang for the buck also. So they started injecting this stuff happened in Vancouver first and then went everywhere else in Canada. And so um, that things never stand still. So you went from opium to heroin to injecting heroin. Then eventually after decades, you know, it got stronger, smaller. We went to what they called China white, which was causing a lot of overdoses in the nineties and then fentanyl now and car fentanyl and other things contaminating it. And fentanyl is all over Canada too. And so you're seeing overdose rates everywhere in the country and, and in the United States uh, increase f- for the same reasons, because um, the drug supply under prohibition will just continue to get more and more contaminated and worse and worse. So the same conditions are going to lead us to more and more deaths. Yeah, no, it's it, it really is so awful. And I don't think unless you're tied in with a loved one or you yourself are suffering it's not something that you really just understand and i think the whole point of this is to reach as many people as possible so they're cognizant and getting educated on on what's going on um and you were also talking about like the strengths and all this sort of stuff and and one thing that i was reading about was an op-ed that you published um a little while back in the vancouver sun um basically about how the city of vancouver recently announced its intention to apply for like a federal a waiver to basically not criminalize possession um and something that was interesting that i was reading about what you wrote was that they uh the drug user community was only consulted after the most critical elements of the report actually went to health canada Um, and basically it resulted in the thresholds for possession being actually way too low so what is the status of that initiative? Is there, you know, is, was the city of Vancouver amenable to changing recommendations? What, what's the status of that? We, yeah, we've been fighting for decriminalization around here for a generation. So we've had <clears throat> detailed proposals to different levels of government for a long time. I'm part of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, and we're pretty sharp on policy. We led the policy on safe injection sites, on needle distribution. So we've been ready for this for a long time. The city of Vancouver caught the idea and thought it was great, and we were very happy about that. So we're like, great, let's sit down and diagram this new world together. And they said no and shut the door and met with the police and the police wanted to have very low levels of, uh, <clears throat> of drugs. Yeah, exactly. Cause the yeah. police, they don't want to give up their power. Right. So, um, so now we were forced to be in conflict with the city saying, look, this is our idea. You took it off us and now you went and talked to the cops and messed up the idea. Let's right. unmess it up. So, so far <laughs> the city has not been willing to unmess it up, but, um, you know, we've been around longer than anybody else around that table. So the police chief is new. The mayor is new. All of the bureaucrats, the health people are new. We're fucking old. We've been here. We've been here a long ass time. And uh, so we know the fight goes on and we've got um, the experience of previous fights to show us how to do it. So I imagine that we'll eventually get to some kind of compromise with them. I hope so. Good. Yeah, no, I hope so too. And you'll have to keep us posted on that. I, I think 
it's really neat that you guys are very much into lobbying government and and changing legislation because at the end of the day that that unfortunately is what you know lobbies around what we're able to do um what else are are you involved in right now i saw you're a part of as you just said the vancouver area network of drug users and then the bc association for people on methadone can you talk about sort of either of those organizations yeah um vandu the vancouver area network of drug users worked with other organizations to do some civil disobedience recently and we have learned from those past struggles, like around safe injection sites and around needle distribution, that you sometimes have to break the law first in order to get the officials to catch up. So, and that's what happened with safe injection sites in Canada were always opened illegally first. That's how we broke the ground eventually, you know, back in the 90s and then in 2016 for the legal operation of safe injection sites in places all over, all over Canada. So it was only 2016 when it became legal? Well, uh, the the long story is in the 90s, we opened underground or illegal safe injection sites. Okay. And that eventually led to Insight, the safe injection oh, right. site, the first okay. one in North America. And, and then the Harper government hated that so much. There was 10 years of court conflict about it. And then the, the current overdose crisis started, you know, officially in the eyes of uh, public health officials in 2016. And so it was still illegal to open anything else other than Insight. And Insight was just a pilot project, right? So there's a half hour lineup people were using in the alleys and dying. So uh, people like Sarah Blythe and Ann Livingston just took tents uh, and put them in the alleys and said, well, they're illegal. They're not, there's no official permission or whatever. Come and get us. You know, we're saving people's lives in here. How illegal is that? And, and so then eventually the, you know, the various governments found a way to sort of legalize it and, and allow it you know uh but it was the same thing you know so we had to kind of in these two in these two sort of tranches of law breaking but it's that 2016 one that that gave everybody else across the country a, a way a possibility to do it i think wow no that, that's but, uh, yeah it, i was gonna say um that bandy was still doing the same thing right now with what we call safe supply so this is the idea that the thing that's killing people is a contaminated drugs mm-hmm. and there's a a pharmaceutical regulated known version of just about every drug that people are doing that won't, that won't have this unknown potentially deadly effect on you as soon as you do it. You know, it's the quantity is known. It's, it's like if you go into a bar and they serve you something and you don't know whether it's a pint of beer or a pint of tequila, you're going to want to know what that is before you, you know, knock it down in one. Right. So, uh, so we've been fighting for safe supply for some time now too. And uh, since the governments are dragging their feet and uninterested so far, uh, or only partially interested, I should say, uh, we just did it um, illegally in front of the police station. So we sourced out a bunch of um, heroin, coke, and meth and tested them through a mass spectrometer and then distributed them to members of our organizations. So, you know, people, people that we knew, but we, right. we tried to show this is how simple it could be. And they uh, haven't been interested thus far because that, I mean, honestly, before a couple of weeks ago when I was doing my research on, on, on you and what you do, I never even heard that, that there was such a thing as safe supply in the sense that you can literally get these drugs in a safer way that's not contaminated with fentanyl or whatever it may be. And I don't think that that's, you know, widely known. Yeah, I mean, fentanyl itself is not... Um is not as scary as you might think. Fentanyl is prescribed in hospitals. So there's uh, versions of fentanyl that are pharmaceutical and you know exactly how strong it is and we know exactly what dose to do. 
fentanyl gets dangerous when you don't know how much of it is in yeah. any doses or you don't yeah. know what else, what other things are in. But if you're just, if you're buying something, you know, it's exactly this amount of dose of fentanyl, then it's so much safer. The same with heroin, the same with cocaine and thus rock and the, the same with meth. The, the thing that kills people is the unknown contamination. Yeah. Uh, and, and having pharmaceutical versions just stops that overnight. Now, I know people are thinking, oh, it doesn't address the addiction or whatever. Well, I'm not, you know, like I'm, I'm technically I'm addicted to methadone. I take it every day. If I stopped taking it, I'd be very sick. So, uh, but my life is fine because I know what's, I know what quantity it is. Uh, it doesn't bankrupt me. It comes from a pharmacy. Uh, I can't get arrested for having it. So it's just like, right. It's these not like a negative impact on your life. You're living life and doing as you should be doing. So that's right. But technically I'm a drug addict. So to me, it's, it's like, we are sometimes grabbing the wrong problem. The mm -hmm. problem isn't what's in your bloodstream. The problem is what's in your lungs. Yeah. Overdose is a lack of oxygen. Yeah. And so if you have opioids in your bloodstream every day, like I do, maybe that's fine. If they're all regulated, if they're all known, if it's safe, if it's not bankrupting you or everybody else, then, then that's okay. The major negative aspects of being wired come from law economy society they actually don't come from the molecule as much as people might think so to me the problem is that people are dying not the problem is that people are wired and if if people want to work on the people are wired problem to me that's a downstream problem we got to stop people from dying first a hundred percent i am 110 percent with you um, and then one thing that you were just chatting about is the fact that you were on methadone i have been learning a ton about all the different um options really to be able to help with recovery um and it's crazy to me how people say that that's not recovery you're just substituting you know one drug for another to me i call bs i mean you know people are on medicine for anxiety depression whatever it may be that's what you do to you know make yourself feel okay and there's nothing wrong with that um, mm -hmm. one question that i've been getting um a lot from people and to be honest i'm not an expert on this can you explain what is the difference between suboxone and methadone? Because I've seen I'm a bunch of um, in a bunch of Facebook groups, and a lot of people have been saying, "Hey, you know, I'm in recovery. Should I be going on methadone, suboxone? What What is the difference?" Well, they're they're kind of in the same category of thing. Okay. You know, they're like a nicotine patch. They're trying to give you a safer version of the thing that you right. were wired to originally. Um, suboxone sort of. Uh, makes it much harder for you to use other substances at the same time. Okay. So when you start on a medication, it's not like this magic switch over. Um, sometimes people don't want to completely stop using the drugs, so, but even having like 90% less use of street drugs is a massive uh, improvement for people. That's harm reduction right there. Right. So with Suboxone, it sort of, um, it kind of prevents you or it tries to prevent you from using other street drugs. It's kind of got a little cop baked in there to, to say, no, 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 you can't do that. Okay. Um, and so maybe someone's looking for a cop to be like swimming in their bloodstream um, and, and maybe that helps them. But uh, I, I find a lot of people who are on Suboxone, they're kind of having this conflict inside, right? Because um, when you stop using uh, street drugs or, or heroin and you, and you take up um, these things are called uh, opioid agonist treatment, you know, mm -hmm. methadone, suboxone, something like that. There, there is this, there is this a, a change that goes on. Like, um, you know, heroin, you can get high off of and fentanyl. You can get high off, feel that really big um, rush, or sometimes it can be big relief or whatever. 
Suboxone and methadone are designed to not give you that, but just give you this kind of even like you're not, you're not dope sick. Right. And, and getting rid of dope sickness is a huge part of the battle for sure. But uh, a lot of times that, that bigger effect, that euphoric effect that you get from the drugs is doing something else too. It might be helping you manage whatever demons or ghosts you got in you, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, if you just get to that flat line, you're not dope sick, you may still find yourself very haunted by the demons and you may still be trying to chase them off. And um, well, for me, heroin was an incredibly effective way of doing that. So um, it's, I think the, the main difference between methadone and suboxone is the degree to which it is hard or not as hard to use other drugs at the same time. Got it. Okay. No, that makes sense. I appreciate the overview. Um, and then one last thing I want to be able to get to because we're on a podcast and podcasts are awesome is your podcast, Crockdown. Um, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what Crackdown is, why you started it, you know, typically what your guests are? Um, I think that'd be awesome to hear a little bit more. Yeah, Crackdown is sort of like a, a monthly documentary show uh, where we talk about different aspects of the drug war that are of interest to the community of activists that I work with. So the people at Vandu, friends and comrades, we sort of formed a little editorial board and and we sort of go through and decide what are the pressing issues that we either have to investigate or tell people about or whatever. And uh, so we, we just take those issue by issue and, you know, we'll talk to people in the life, you know, people who are experiencing the, the, the pains and harms of prohibition and they have the sort of expert insider view on what's going on. And then we'll also talk to academics because in some cases we have specifically asked people to go do a study on some aspect right. of life. And so we'll, we'll kind of compare those two things together. You know, we've looked at uh, different, um, different aspects of the drug war and different solutions. So, you know, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we went to Portugal and just looked at their model of decriminalization, yeah. talked to drug users there. We also went to uh, Scotland to see um, the overdose crisis in Glasgow. It had some interesting similarities to what's going on in Vancouver and also some interesting things we learned about what happens when benzodiazepines contaminate the illegal drug supply and the complexities there. So we took some of those learnings home. I guess the the thing about the podcast is um, it's it's like it is documentary. So everything's like a little um, a little bit of a movie or a little bit of a journey or something like that. Cool. And it's all rooted in activism in the community. That's amazing. What a cool overview. I was going to say, I started uh, listening to it recently. I think it's awesome. So everyone, make sure you uh, check out the Crackdown podcast too. Um, awesome, Garth. So I think we're just about done. I want to give you the opportunity. What's sort of the your words of wisdom to leave our audience with? Um, wherever you are, you can organize. There's no place that exists that won't benefit from you helping organize. And there's no place that I know of that doesn't have drug users in it. We're just sometimes uh, pretty secretive, you know, like I, it's, it's pretty shameful. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of bad shit can happen to you. If you admit, you know, you can get fired from your job or you can get evicted from your house or in trouble with your family or your church can shun you or whatever, but we're in all of those places. We are in your churches and families and workplaces and community centers and all that. So, um, the people who are drug users right now listening to you, I, I, I always think try to find each other. It's a fucking lonely life, you know, and, and finding people who are going through the same thing, that's really liberating. 
and then people who care about this stuff can organize, you know, and sometimes it's just taking the fangs off of a community that's being really brutal to people and uh, helping blunt that. And I, th I think every little bit of that helps. So um, I encourage people to do that. Form a little group wherever you are. Love it. Thanks, Garth. I really appreciate all your time and thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you and stay safe and keep six. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following the Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.